Welcome to Judaism Demystified, podcast for the perplexed. We are joined by Rabbi Nathaniel Helfgott. Rabbi Helfgott is Rabbi of Congregation Etivot Shalom in Teaneck, New Jersey, and serves as Chair of the Department of Torah Shabal Peh at SAR High School in NYC. He is Coordinator of the Annual Community Yimei Iyun on Bible and Jewish Thought, sponsored by Yeshivat Chovei Torah Rabbinical School, and has taught in various adult education settings throughout North America, the UK, and Israel. Rabbi Helfgott is a graduate of Yeshiva College with honors and was subsequently ordained by Ritz after studying for a number of years in its Kolo program. He also received a master's in Jewish education from the Azraeli Graduate School of Education and completed graduate work in Bible at the Bernard Revel Graduate School. Rabbi Helfgott studied for many years in Israel with Rabbi Aaron Lichtenstein, Zecher Tzadik Levracha, at Yeshiva Taratzion and the Gross Institute, becoming a close disciple and has been involved in editing some of his Hebrew essays for publication. He has published widely in English and Hebrew in areas of Bible, Jewish law, and ethics, Jewish philosophy, and contemporary events. He is the author of Divrei Beracha Umoed, a collection of Hebrew novelae on halachic topics as well as the editor of Community, Covenant, and Commitment, Selected Letters and Communications of Rabbi Joseph B. Soloveitchik, and the YCT Companion to the Book of Samuel, and Mikra and Meaning, Essays in Bible and its Interpretation. Without further ado, Rabbi Helfgott. Welcome to Judaism Demystified. Thank you for joining us. Um, it's really a pleasure your book is one of our favorites, and Bensi has been raving about you for years. <laughs> Thank you so much. Uh, it's wonderful to be here. Um, uh, I um, I live in Teaneck, New Jersey these days. I'm a rabbi of a shul, a small shul, but I also teach uh, full-time at, uh, at SAR High School. I also do, um, and I teach Talmud and Tanakh, and I also, uh, as well, I sometimes teach in uh, adult education settings, and uh, I uh, do many different things. And um, I went to Yeshiva University uh, for high school, for college, for graduate school, for smicha. Um, I learned in the Kolel there. Um, and I'm very thankful to all the different wonderful uh, teachers that I had there, uh, especially in terms of uh, what we're talking about tonight. Um, one of my closest teachers, Rabbi Shalom Karmi, who I studied very much, uh, from with him and from him and uh, remains a very dear teacher and friend and I learned a tremendous amount both in terms of content and methodology and also I had the great uh, opportunity during the summers uh, a lot of wonderful teachers from uh, Israel a lot of academics from Israel used to come and teach uh, at Yeshiva University in the uh, in the graduate school and I, so I had a wonderful opportunity to study with uh, Professor Yishayahu Maori uh, Zichronoli Vracha uh, Professor um, Avigdor Shinan, who's one of the world's experts in in uh, Midrash, and uh, and others that I had an opportunity to study with, uh, and uh, really learned a tremendous amount from them, and and of course uh, studied in Israel with uh, my Rebbe Rav Lichtenstein for many many years, as well as uh, really got a chance to study with some of the the great. The greatest of the greats in Tanakh and Machshava. I studied with Nechama Leibovitz, Zichronali Vracha. I studied with Ibadel uh, Chaim Tovim, Rav Yol Binun, and Rav Mordechai Breuer, Zichronali Vracha. And uh, and so was tremendously affected by all that. And, um, you know, I'm involved, as I said, I'm involved in Chinuch uh, of high school kids, of adults, uh, sometimes rabbinical students, and um, as well as... Uh, uh, my shul here in Tinek, uh, Nitivot Shalom. So, uh, and I, you know, I still have my, my first love was Tanakh and Midrash and it continues to be, and I continue to learn from so many people. And, and there's also now today such wonderful new teachers who, uh, very dear friend, uh, Rabbi, uh, Professor Yonatan Grossman, uh, in Israel, who's become, uh, and a very dear friend. He stayed at my house a few times. When he's been in America, and we've become very close, and and many others, Yitzay Shalom, and many other wonderful, uh, wonderful teachers. You're surrounded by all stars. Yeah, believable. Seriously, so we are here to discuss your incredible book, Mikra Meaning, and 
to start off, we wanted to discuss your introductory essay, Between Heaven and Earth, where you discuss curricula, pedagogical, pedagogical choices, methodologies, and values in the study of Tanakh. Uh, we wanted to ask you if you can talk about these methodologies and how, in your experience, that enhances your Akshamayim. Right. So in the introduction, it's a lengthy introduction, I, I speak about, um, you know, that sometimes um, one uh, receives a critique from part the more uh, conservative with a small c, uh, the more uh, Haredi elements in our community against the more modern uh, community and their approach to study Tanakh, uh, the focus on Pshat and the focus on trying to get at the truth and not necessarily always uh, simply accept uh, every midrash as literal, uh, and I try in the in that introduction to talk about the fact that you know, especially within uh, the modern community that is open to the world and is open to knowledge and is open, uh, and that's the world in which we live and and breathe our air. Um, the meaning of yirat shamayim uh, is a little more complex than a simple emunat mima, uh, where you kind of. Uh, push out everything else around you. In a world which, even if that was possible to be hermetically sealed, I'm not sure it's possible anymore, but you know that's one kind of world. But in a world in which uh, students and adults are reading everything, and especially those who are serious and searching for truth and interested uh, and will be exposed and study uh, honestly, uh, when they come to study Tanakh and they come to study Midrash um, and are exposed to to non-observant writings and are exposed to history and archaeology and literary theory and science and all kinds of things, um, the idea that one can simply ignore that um, and not uh, engage with it is, you know, is, is simply uh, not realistic. And in the worst case scenario, you have the situation of the kid who, you know, looks back on their high school or college uh, experience of Talmud Torah or yeshiva experience of Talmud Torah and says, oh, they hid things from me <laughs> or, you know, they made believe like there was no problem, but there are problems. And, and it's, I think, much more, um, it's a much healthier attitude within the cocoon of our yeshiva uh, day school, high school, yeshivas in Israel uh, context to expose kids and adults uh, in a, in a, supportive, reverent, uh, Yirat Shamayim context to all the various uh, methodologies that are out there to the study of Tanakh, uh, understanding their principles and gaining so much uh, beauty and knowledge uh, and depth of Torah that it actually ultimately enhances a sophisticated Yirat Shamayim. Uh, and when you can appreciate what the Torah is doing, that the Torah is not a history book, but it is something else, and that uh, Tanakh uh, is the prophetic take on history and how to understand it and how they're playing off of previous stories and how they're interacting with the world around them and understanding the ancient Near East um, and seeing the genius uh, of the Kitve HaKodesh and then ultimately the genius of Chazal and how they used Midrash to understand certain things, problems they had, etc. So I think ultimately this enhances one, uh, certainly a, a modern person's Yirat Shamayim. Um, part of Yirat Shamayim is a search for deep truth. And sometimes as Rambam taught us that we have to be willing to revise certain preconceived notions uh, for a deeper understanding of truth. Uh, but that doesn't take away from uh, our commitment to Torah and mitzvot doesn't take away. In fact, it can enhance, deepen, uh, enrich uh, one's experience of Judaism and give a lot of joy in their Talmud Torah and not feel in any way that one is giving up their their rational faculty when they open up a sefer. Very well said. In regards to... Um sources in the Geonim and Rishonim, I recall in your introduction that you also give ample evidence in the actual sources Correct. as to the nature of how Midrash, Midrash uh, Yes, operate. I mean, one of the, one of the most famous uh, is actually printed in the Vilna Shas that every 
Dafyomi learner <laughs> studies, and if you look in the in the end of Masechet Brachot, uh, and uh, you have the Mavola Talmud of Rab Shmuel Hanagid, which is printed there, and where he talks about the fact that certainly when it comes to Midrash Agada, Midrash Halacha is a different category, but when it comes to Midrash Agada, when we're not dealing with any legal text, we're dealing with uh, how old Yitzchak Avinu was when he went to the Akedah. Uh, when we ask uh, who was the Papa Bear of the, of, of uh, you know, who was Slavchad uh, and the Midrash. When, you, when you're dealing with those kinds of issues, uh, dating issues, historical issues, not dealing with uh, what, what is the meaning of totafot, <laughs> when you're dealing with Midrash Agada, so he says very explicitly, reflecting the consensus of the Gaonim, which is that those things, are not halachal emoshim Sinai. They weren't given down on Sinai. These are the interpretations of certain chazal uh, to the best of their understanding, sometimes with a, with an agenda. Agenda is not a bad word. Agenda just means that they had a purpose in presenting a certain idea. Uh, they wanted to highlight certain themes, certain religious values. And, and as he says there, that which makes sense, we will accept. And that which doesn't make sense, we don't have to accept. And number, I would just add that, uh, you know, um, when we deal with Midrash Agada, my general uh, motto, as I try to teach my students, is every Midrash Agada should be taken seriously. Not every Midrash Agada has to be taken literally. Something should be taken seriously without necessarily being taken literally um, is, of course, something that Rambam taught us long ago. But it's already in the Gaonim uh, as a central theme, and it becomes very very, uh, very um, central to many of the Rishonim that we love and learn from. Um, there are, of course, um, there was a certain strand that didn't go that way. And certainly in the Haredi community, that became the dominant strand in the modern period. But, you know, again, the, the majority of the Rishonim and the Gaonim took a very different approach. They were very reverential to all the Midrash Agada that they learned. They took them seriously, but they also tried to understand what it was saying, and they didn't always agree with it. When it came to Pshuto Shalmikra, the Ibn Ezra left and right disagrees with certain things. Rambam disagrees with certain things. Ramban disagrees with certain things when he doesn't think that that's Pshuto Shalmikra, the plain sense of the text. And, uh, you know, and I think that we're continuing uh, in that mode, in that model uh, that you know the derech she salal Rishonim that the Rishonim kind of uh, you know kind of uh, started for us. So, do you think that the Gaonim and Rishonim were aware of the idea of intertextuality, or do you think that intertextuality is kind of like a like a because intertextuality requires, in a way, you need to have technology because you have to have all of the, no, really, it, it, right. it's right. So. So look, I think the answer, or not the answer, but I think the approach is, I think, yes, bigadol, they were aware of it. They just didn't necessarily do it systematically. Right. Meaning, just like many things um, in, you know, if you look at Rishonim, they often will note certain things, certain um, philological comments. They'll yeah. notice certain things. You know, the Rashbam talks about derech hamikraot. This is the way that biblical Hebrew does it, you know. Um, the thing is, they didn't write a systematic treatise on that necessarily, but they threw out these little comments. In a certain sense, um, you know, when the Ramban, you know, notices, you know, comparisons between the story of, you know, um, you know, Pilegesh Begiv'ah and uh, stories, previous stories in Tanakh. That's a kind of inter... He, he noticed certain patterns. When there are Midrashim that say, oh, Eliyahu Hanavi did many of the things that Moshe Rabbeinu did. He also fasted for 40 days. And he went to Har Chorev. The Midrashim that do that, the thing is they don't necessarily do it systematically. In every case, and there are many situations where they didn't comment on it, but you have uh, all kinds of examples of it. And the more Midrash you know, and the more Mefarshim you know, the more you can 
see that almost many of the things, not everything, I mean, Chazal say, Makom you know, you know, they left things, but you'll see that many of the techniques and many of the ideas um, are, you know, hinted at in certain Midrashim, sometimes made explicit in certain Midrashim, sometimes made explicit, but it's not, the, the unique thing is to try to do this systematically and see certain things over and over and over again and apply it as a method as much as you can throughout a safe fair and you see things once you have the method you see more and more those things and using keywords and using patterning and using so and i don't think you're right that you can see more with technology because right. you can you can see how many times does this word appear and, and this concept but you know you don't have to necessarily need a you know a gpt you know or an ai all you <laughs> need is a good concordance and yeah. a good zikaron of Tanakh. <laughs> yes. Well, Tanakh is huge. <laughs> yeah. That's why you have a concordance. And concordance started in the late Middle Ages. So, you know. Okay. Fantastic. <laughs> you know, for us, this is such an important uh, uh, lesson because we feel, I know so many people who got turned off by Midrash because they were taught, you know, the literalist right. version of it. And, right. you know, we're trying to kind of show everybody that we don't need to get rid of midrash we actually should show you how to properly study it how to appreciate right. it and 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 appreciate different categories of midrash meaning there are some midrashim that are trying to answer a an, an exegetical <clears throat> problem in the text and that's one type of midrash and there's another type of midrash which is using the text as a springboard just like you know the rabbi in shul uses the text adrasha was using yeah. the text as a springboard. And there are other midrashim that are engaging in polemic against the, you know, dominant Roman culture that they confronted. And there are other midrashim which are, you know, interested in telling sipure ma'aseh about chazal and about others. I mean, there's all these different genres of midrashim and you have to know what you're doing with. And then you have to see, <clears throat> does the midrash fit into this? How far away is it from the Pshuto Shalmikra? And if it is far away, what do you think they're doing when they do this? You know, what are what are the Midrashim trying to convey? And what are they trying to say? And what do they say to us? You know, these are all important questions. And are they engaging in a polemic of their time? Are they engaging in a philosophical question? Are they engaging in, no, a real exegetical question that they, this was an approach and you can agree, you can disagree. They 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 saw something strange in the text. Sometimes the midrash, you know, has a deeper understanding of a of the broader context than just this pasuk, and that's also important. So yeah, can you weigh in on maybe why it's happened, like this trend of of treating midrash the way you know the common yeshivas do today like why do you think that that happened why are we moving away from the, the strands the strands of uh okay I, yeah i mean i think part of it it you know goes back to the haskalah and the enlightenment um when you know orthodox jewry we didn't they didn't call it that then but when traditional jury saw itself very much under attack and very much um and and being exposed to more modern approaches often led to a diminishing of observance. And so they kind of cut out all of that and saw it as part and parcel of the modern approach. And anything that wasn't, you know, exactly the way that they had learned um, in very, very traditional contexts became a threat. And so you pushed, pushed very much. So you pushed aside a lot of the Rishonim who took a more uh, nuanced and balanced approach to understanding Midrash and the differences between Pshat and Drash. And especially given the fact that, you know, the early reform movement and the early Haskalah started to undermine not just Midrash Agadah from their point of view, but Midrash Halakha and started to talk about that there was biblical Judaism and there was rabbinic Judaism and there's late rabbinic Judaism. And so that became very much a threat. And so anytime you talk, about distinctions between Pshat and Drash, all of a sudden people became very frightened that 
you know, maybe the Rashbam could talk about that, that, you know, the pshat of the text, you know, you know, the oat might mean, you know, literally an oat as a figurative, and Chazal had the drash that it means this, and both are true. But in the 1780s and 1790s and 1850s, somebody who is exposed to that kind of thinking says, whoa, so that means I don't really have to put on to fill in. And, you know, so it became uh, uh, very much, it, it reminds me, I think I, I think I mentioned it in the in the in the introduction. Um, one of the great Rosh Yeshivas of the post-war era, uh, Rav Avram uh, Bloch of Tel's Yeshiva. So he writes in, in a letter. He talks about how, unfortunately, um, in his day, we gave Hebrew up to the Maskilim because they saw Hebrew um, so much. You know, especially the early. You know, because the 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 early Maskilim in in Eastern Europe. They saw Yiddish as, you know, a, a very debased language of the old ways in the old country. And they said, no, we're going to speak in Hebrew. And so Hebrew became usser in certain circles. It became verboten in certain circles because it was, it was associated with the modern trends of the free thinkers and the people who were less observant. And so he, he bemoans the fact that we gave up Hebrew and now we're giving up Tanakh and we're giving up, you know, so... That's something that happened in history. Yeah. Well, we're happy that, you know, we have people like you uh, bringing it back. And uh, we're we're very excited for what's to come, because right now we're going to get up to one of our favorite uh, parts, which is your first the first chapter of your book. Uh, you delve into an, an in-depth study of the famous Midrash. Uh, regarding Avram Avinu's youth, shattering of his father's idols, and the confrontation with Nimrod. This Midrash is used as a model for the study of intertextuality of Midrash and Drash. Can you discuss the insights you uncovered with this Midrash and how it relates more broadly to the study of intertextuality? Sure. Uh, and in fact, um, this is a case of what I call not only intertextuality, but reverse intertextuality. Um, which I'll talk about at the end. Um, as I mentioned before, um, there are different kinds of midrashim, and sometimes the most challenging midrashim are the ones that purport to fill in gaps in the biblical narrative. But you ask yourself, you know, where does it come from? Because there's no inkling at all. In fact, when you read the Torah, you know, you get you have no inkling at all that why HaKadosh Baruch Hu chose Avraham to be the progenitor of Am Yisrael, of the Jewish people. It just kind of, he has no origin story. He just kind of shows up uh, 75 years old and he's called. We have no, we have no uh, sense of why he's called as opposed to Noah. The Bible at least says, meaning it seems that Noah did something good in the eyes of God. We don't know exactly what he did, but Avraham is a is a blank slate. You know, later on in the biblical text, you could talk about. You know, we see Avraham fighting on behalf of Sodom. We see that Avraham is a kind of welcoming person. So, in retrospect, we get a glimpse of why God may have chosen Avraham, but not from the beginning. So we understand the rabbi's desire, uh, like all of us. Um, to, to have an origin story that people don't just show up. And especially, again, and this is a little bit more uh, scientific, we know that uh, in, in certainly in all ancient literatures, like Midrash, uh, you know, heroes don't simply show up. They have to have a backstory. They <laughs> have to have been, they have to be unique and special and have been trained. And they show up, you know, till today. In comic books, every superhero has to have an origin story. So we understand the origin, the, the need, but why specifically this story? And why this emphasis on destroying the idols, which itself is very counter the Pshutoshal Mikra, because when you study the Avraham stories and the Yitzchak stories and the Yaakov stories, Avodah is not a major theme. It's not like in, you know, in, in Sefer Shoftim, where Avodah Zarah is, is like a constant challenge. You don't see that by Avraham. You don't see them all, oh, you know. So it's really a, 
a totally new reading back into the text. It also, if I may, um, it also like it's striking how the Avram of this Midrash is very different than the Avram in the Torah because you know Avram in the Torah is very calculated. He 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 lies about Sarah being his sister twice. Right, right. He doesn't he's not this like blind faith guy who's just willing to jump right. out of a furnace. Correct. And here is a very different right. So so as I mentioned as so it's striking that while the story um as it as it presented in Midrash Rabbah and other sources and it's a very ancient Midrash as I try to show academically it, it appears uh in the book of Jubilees uh one of the apocrypha which means that you know the people in the time of the Dead Sea Scrolls community were reading such Midrashim that was floating around this idea was floating so I said it's true that it doesn't appear by Avraham, but it appears explicitly in another biblical text, which is very rooted in the time of Avodazar, and that's the story of Gid'on. In Gid'on, you have a mamish, mamish the story. You have a son um, who is, who, um, you know, is a very pious and righteous and destroys the Mizbeach um, Labal, destroys the altar of his father's idols, at night, uh, which is what the Book of Jubilee says, and he destroys it. And after that, he's in uh, he's in a tremendous amount of 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 uh, danger to be killed by the locals, and he is saved uh, by the hand of God. There's also a mocking of the gods uh, by there. The father, um, you know, says the Baal should protect himself, and here uh, Abraham mocks the gods in the midrashic story, and so you see that there is a lot of, it's it's exactly the same story, which Chazal kind of cut and lifted and pasted into the Midrashic story, which is clearly what we call intertextuality in the sense that the Midrash, uh, you know, so to speak, Gidon took it from the, you know, the Midrash took it from the Gidon story. On the other hand, I wanted to suggest that why did the rabbis feel that this was the perfect origin story to, so to speak, put on Abraham, because if you look carefully, there are many elements in the Gidon story that clearly echo the Avraham story in Tanakh, where Gidon, many of the phrases, he he sees a, an angel, an angel appears to him, he feeds an angel, he takes care of the angel, um, and many, many of those elements, which appear by Avraham, then appear by Gidon. And do so you remember, I, do you remember a few off the top of your head? Yeah, let me just, I don't, I mean, one of the most famous. I think they went out with 300 men, right? He went out with 300 men. Again, there were a lot. There were a lot of things. Three pages just, in your book. There were yeah. like three pages in your book worth of stuff. Yeah. Crazy. Right. right. He <laughs> says, um, Abraham you know, says, and the angel, uh, and he says, Atayadati kire lokim ata. And oh, I'm sorry. This is uh, by uh, by Eli. Sorry, <laughs> sorry. Um, yeah. Um, so number one, uh, Gidon um, takes. You know, we find Gidon uh, comes and the angel sits under a tree, which of course is very similar to Abraham. You know, he. Um, you know, he sha'ain tachat ha'etz sit down under the tree. The angels sit down under the tree. Gidon offers them food and he offers them some meat and basar and a fat kemach matzot and marak and a broth, which is, of course, very similar to Avraham, which consists, Avraham brings them bread and meat. And it's interesting that the Midrash says that it was Pesach, that he offered them matzot. There's a kind of Midrash on top of a Midrash. Um, and and. And just as Avraham said, how will I know? So too, Gidon uses the same terminology. It's very rare. Through what? And once again, here he says, God says to Gidon, Shalom, which is the same phrase that he uses for Avraham, okay? Gidon, says to Hashem, Al Yichar Abchabi Vaadabra Ach Hapaam Anaseh Na Rak Hapaam, which of course reminds us of Avraham in the 
vikuach in his discussion, in his argument with God about Sodom, where he also uses the same term, Again, you see all these linguistic parallels that clearly Gidon seems to be, or the writer of the book of Shoftim more correctly, um, is making a conscious effort that the reader will understand the character of Gidon as Mivusas an Avraham Avinu, as 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 you know, linking him to to, to Avram Avinu, and that's very powerful because it just it just puts Gidon in a different sphere. And in fact, Gidon is the one who is offered to be the Melech. He's the one who's offered to be the king. He could have stopped Sefer Shoftim. We would have stopped it right there. We would have started Sefer Melachim, and it's Dafka. And as you said correctly, you know, Gidon goes up with the three hundred soldiers, just like Avram goes up with the three. Uh, 300 soldiers, and the many other parallels. So, so I suggested as a kind of reverse reverse intertextuality is that once Chazal saw that Gidon was patterned in the biblical text on Avraham Avinu, so they went a step further and they said, oh, so if, if Gidon is patterned on Avram, maybe Avram on a Midrashic level can be patterned on Gidon. And we can gain insights about things that are missing in the life of Abraham from the life of Gidon as it's presented in Tanakh. And they did that. And they do that in many, many instances. And I give other examples in that article. And there are many other instances. Um, just to give you one example, I don't know if I, I don't think it's in that article, but, you know, uh, you know, it says that uh, when Abraham was, uh, when he went to walk for the Akedah, Vayareta Makom Merachok, he saw the place uh, from afar, and Chazal say Ra'a Anan Kashur. He saw a he saw a, a cloud kind of you know ringing that mountain. He knew, oh, that's the mountain. Again, where did they where did they get that? And again, if you look in um, if you look and you'll see that there's at the end in the story of Matan Torah in chapter 24 of the book of Exodus. So the Bible presents the, so to speak, the end part of Matan Torah, of the Revelation, chapter 24. The whole debate, whether it happened after Matan or right the same time as Matan Torah. But the Bible uses language which is very strikingly similar to the Akedah there. Vayashkem, they got up early in the morning. And there's the Na'ar, the Na'arei Yisrael. The Jews, the children go up and see God. I mean, there's a seeing of God. Hashem Yireh. There's a lot of echoes of the Akedah, which makes perfect sense. It's a revelation of God par excellence. Oh, but at the very end of that, it says, and Vayishkon He'anan Al-Hahar. So the rabbi said, well, if Matan Torah is patterned on the Akedat Yitzchak, the revelation, and they bring Korbanot there, they bring Olot there, just like at, at the end of Akedat Yitzchak. So then Akedat Yitzchak must have had elements of Matan Torah in it. So there's a lot of intertextuality in Midrashim going back and forth. This is incredible. I have a question for you, which I'm wondering. So do you think that when the rabbis, or the sages, yeah. uh, when sages notice this pattern, and they they noticed uh, this intertextual link, and they said to themselves, "Okay, like you said, let's just do it with Gidon. It's easier for me." So Gidon, right, is 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 um, modeled pattern, after, pattern right. modeled modeled Abraham. Abraham, right? So therefore, since we have that origin story with Gidon, we can model Avram from Gidon. Right? Do you think they thought therefore that that means that the origin story of Avram in their mind? in their perspective do you think that means that they think that that's actually what happened or to have the creative license to be able to do that via the inter intertextual link right is enough to allow it to be presented as a right. midrash i think I, what do you think that they actually right, I, th I think i think this is just a thought because again yeah, I know. what i think is that the original authors of that midrash that first generation or second generation thought in the second, your second formulation. 
they did not necessarily think that that's what actually happened. But it's something that could have happened. And it's something that enriches and un- helps us deepen our understanding of Avraham Avinu. It's something that could have happened to Avraham Avinu. I don't think they necessarily believed it actually did happen to Avraham Avinu. In subsequent generations, meaning when people like Rashi or someone you know, in the 1300s read that Midrash, they, I think, believe that it happened. Right. But if you ask me the original writers, because there are many statements, you know, there's a famous statement in the Gemara, I think it's in Shabbat about, or I have to look, about Komad de Darshinan, Darshinan. Anything that you can Darshin, Darshin, which I take to mean that there was that sort of what you said, that kind of creative license that they saw as enriching the biblical narrative and filling in gaps and enriching and the characters and making it something that teaches us. Torah is an is an unending source of wisdom and guidance. And therefore they saw this as guiding us and fitting into the broad narrative of what Avraham Avinu comes to teach us. Yeah, you know what's you. fascinating? Oh, I'm yeah. sorry that you were talking. Go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. I'm sorry. Do you know what's fascinating? Um, the Rambam, okay, famously looks very down upon taking Midrashim literally. Correct. Right? Uh, takes it extremely seriously. In fact, says that uh, Midrash contains the Sodot and all that. Right. right? Of course. Great. But in this story with Abraham, for some reason, if you look in the Mishnah Torah, right. he literally outlines the entire Midrash in the Mishnah Torah coded in Talacha, meaning it's within, right. it, it's it's almost right. hard to say that the Rambam, for some reason, with this Midrash, took it literally. Right. I wonder what you thought about that. Just Right. I mean, but remember, if I'm not mistaken, the Rambam's presentation of Abraham there in Hilchot, um, in Hilchot of Zazara is like this kind of philosopher who kind of, you know... Right, but he has the elements of the Midrash. In correct, the he has elements of the Midrash. Yeah, it's, yes, it's not right. exactly the it same, is. Right. It is interesting. Um, you know, sometimes an idea is so wedded to, you know, is so ensconced in the tradition and in the, you know, so to speak, and into the mother's milk of the community that you can't ignore it. So, yeah, I, I think that, uh, you know... I think that that is uh, something, you know, I'd have to do more more research, but yeah, sometimes an idea. I just thought I'd bring it up. Yeah, no, no, I think it's an important, I think it's an important point. Sometimes an idea. That's exactly what I was going to bring up myself because. Oh my God, so sorry. No, 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 it's perfect (laughs) because, you know, I I, I think that the the interesting part of it is that Gidon's story is talking about Avodah Zarah and this whole the, I think the I think the best part and the most important part of the midrash is not the is not necessarily the jumping in the fiery furnace or, right. or the, the breaking of the idols because the breaking of the idols is already a, the ancient understanding of Avodah Zarah, but as Chazal and as humanity matures, the idolatry becomes more sophisticated. So the mm-hmm. response to idolatry has to also become more refined, and what happens is this this story why I think the Rambam held it at such high regard is that it feeds into his idea of, of negative theology. The whole de- argument between Rambam, um, 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 Avraham and Nimrod is about what God is not. Right. Interesting. Very interesting. Yeah. Right. But I would just say to that personally, that he could have used that in the more Nebuchadnezzar for that. He didn't have to code it into Mishnah Torah. Right. The, the coding it into Mishnah Torah makes it more, uh, I guess open for debate. I guess. Then, if it was just in the Mora, then then yeah, you know what I mean. But anyway, I just thought that was an interesting point. Yeah, but, that was very interesting. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Um, we want to now talk about the eighth chapter of your book, which you discuss. <laughs> sorry, which you discuss the story of Moshe striking the rock, and you offer a fresh perspective on understanding both Moshe's actions and the consequences that follow. Can you share your insights on this narrative with us? Yes. Now, this is like this chapter is you know a kind of uh, analysis um, when you have um, you know when you have this very difficult uh, problem. Everyone's 
you know, Shadal writes, you know, Moshe Rabbeinu committed one Avera, and when you finish reading the Mepharshim, it has 17 different Averot, you know, and uh, it, you know, when you have 17 different understandings, it often raises the problem of, you know, <laughs> we really, we really do really know anything, you know, so, or, you know, is it so difficult? And then, of course, the moral question or moral problem of, you know, what did he do that was so terrible here that he lost uh, entry into the land of Israel because of it? There seem to be other, quote-unquote, mistakes, sins that Moshe makes uh, in other parts of the narrative, which seem to be much worse. Um, and yet the Bible constantly connects his not going into the land of Israel. You didn't sanctify my name. There was a kind of missed opportunity. The story of Moshe Rabbeinu hitting the rock uh, in Parshat uh, Chukat is presented in the Bible as that's the reason he doesn't enter the land of Israel. You know, you didn't, because you didn't sanctify my, to the eyes of B'nai Israel. And it's clear that there's a lost opportunity. And I mentioned that it's a very difficult story because number one, we don't understand um, what's so terrible about hitting the rock as opposed to speaking to the rock. Uh, there are other sins that Moshe committed, which seem to be worse in the Bible. Number one, number two, um, the fact is that God told Moshe to hit the rock back in Parshat B'Shalach, and it's presented as a normal, uh, beautiful thing. And he print and he seemed to convince convince the Jewish, you know, the the people there and solve the problem. So what's so terrible about it? And the fact that there's so many different answers leads one to think that you know something is not there. Simply saying that you hit the rock and something's got to be underlying the story. And so I I went through different mafarshim and looked at them, but they all kind of leave you a little bit hanging and uh, not satisfied. Um, and I think that the the key to to this is like in many situations is placement and language, language and placement. The fact is, this is the first story of the second generation, uh, as understood by most of the commentaries in the plain sense of the text. The plain sense of the text is, you know, we had Parshat Shlach, which was the story of the spies and Ma'apilim, and the Jewish people are told that they're not going to enter the land of Israel. So we have that seems to occur. At the beginning of the second year, it seems very clear from the text. Um, we have the story of Korach right before that, which seems to also take place uh, during the desert experience, the first generation, um, maybe very early, maybe in the middle, it's unclear. But by the time we get to chapter 20, uh, we find Miriam is dying. Later on in chapter 20, Aharon dies. And we know from the end of Sefer Bamidbar that Aaron died explicitly. It says he died in the 40th year. So chapter 20, we're in the end. And yet this is the first narrative that we have of the second generation. It's the first narrative of the second generation. So that's very significant. And when you look carefully at the two stories, so on, on the surface, meaning the story in, in, in Bishalach and the story here, they seem to be similar, so similar that Bechor Shor makes the radical claim that it's the same story and just one is filling in the details of others, which is very radical and, you know, leads to all kinds of interesting discussions, a kind of proto-biblical criticism, you know, um, of, but, okay. Um, but the, the plain sense is that these are two different stories, uh, one occurring very early in the narrative when the Jewish people just left Egypt, uh, as opposed to here at the very end of the, the beginning of the second generation's uh, stories, narrative in the Bible. And if you look carefully at the language, you start to see differences, small differences, but important differences. Back in, in you know, in, in, in Parshat, in Parshat B'Shalach, the Bible doesn't present it as a whole theological question where the people say, why did you, why did we leave Egypt? It's a, it seems to be a water problem. They have a water problem. They need water, just like they needed food at the in the middle of Parshat B'Shalach. And God provided food through the man. So to here, God provides water. And it's very interesting that Moses does not do the miracle in front of Am Yisrael. It says, Le'enei Ziknei Yisrael. It's only done, Le'enei Ziknei Yisrael. The first generation simply had a problem. Moshe Rabbeinu solved the problem. He showed the elders how you solve this kind of a problem. 
it was not a major theological. It's not the issue. The Jewish people are going to experience, they just experienced Yitziat Mitzrayim. They're going to experience the revelation at Sinai. It's a different, the need of the hour is very different. However, 40 years later, this is a second generation. Many of them have never, have, did not stand at the foot of Sinai. Their parents were dead. Um, the water story is presented in a much broader uh, context. It's not just about water. It's about, you know, will God lead them? Will God take take care of them? Um, what is their connection? Uh, the Bible doesn't talk about, you know, and, and here Moshe Rabbeinu has an opportunity in the language of God, to sanctify B'nei Israel. This is in the midst of the Jewish people, that they should see the power of God, they should see the caring of God, the providence of God. And Moshe Rabbeinu reacts in the same way he did 38 years ago. He uses the same categories, the same method that he used 38 years ago. And that's why he's not the right leader anymore. Because the whole point is to understand the different generation. The whole point is the tactic that you used 38 years ago. That's exactly the point. You use the exact same tactic. But this is a new generation. And a new generation needs different tactics. And Dafka, as I use the term there, the halakhic term, Gilui Milta, it's reflective of the fact that Moses is no longer in touch directly with the needs of the people and what this generation needs. And therefore, it's not so much a hate and onesh, a sin and punishment, as more of a consequence that's reflective. It reveals that it's time for Moshe Rabbeinu to retire and new blood to come in. So that's the basic idea. I tried to show it in the text. I tried to show it with the language. And I think that it, it makes sense in the context of the narrative. Makes a lot of sense. And the next chapter, the ninth chapter of your book, you discuss the Parsha of Balak and its unique character in the Bible. You emphasize how the story is like out of place with the rest of the books of, of, uh, of uh, Moshe. Uh, this is followed by very interesting thematic parallels to the book of Shemot, suggesting right. that these parallels are the key to unlocking this Parsha. Can you elaborate right. on that? I really... I mean, this is an example of something with more broad theme in the entire book of Bamidbar, which is that the second generation experiences many of the same challenges, obviously in different forms because it's new people, new, new, new geography, new situations, but they experience many of the similar threats that the first generation did, and they overcome those threats. Sometimes they overcome the mistakes that the first generation makes, which is symbolic. It says that's why the second generation can enter the land of Israel. They have their own, so to speak, Yitziat Mitzrayim and threat from Balak. Balak is presented like Paro, and he is presented as a threat to them, and they are able to overcome that threat. And it's interesting that in many of the Midrashim, uh, the text, you know, places Bilam together with Yitro back in Paro's court all the way back. You have all these connections. Then you have the literary connections about, um, you know, um, that the Jewish people are seen as a threat to Balak in the same way that they were seen as a threat to Paro. And many of the language, you know, and the fact that in the in the uh, blessings of Bilam, you know, he makes much reference to Yitziat Mitzrayim over and over again. And again, all these things, but it's part of a broader pattern that the second generation experiences their own kind of situation. So, you know, Baal Pa'or is a kind of of the second generation. You have a lot of language there that echoes, you know, right after God says, you know, I'm going to make a covenant with you and don't call their daughters in Parshat Mishpat, in Parshat Kitisa. Don't call their daughters. They're going to call you to do Avodazar, which is exactly what happens in Baal Pa'or. How do you overcome the sin of Baal Pa'or? It's kind of the Chaita Egel of the second generation. You have the sin, you have the potential sin of the Bnei Gad, Bnei Ruvain, where you have a sort of second Chaita uh, Maraglim, except that it's reversed. Um, in the story of uh, the Maraglim, you had the 10 tribes 
who did evil and the two tribes who did good. Yoshua from Ephraim, from the sons of Joseph, the Leia line, and, Yehu and Kalev ben Yifuneh to Yehuda from the, I'm sorry, from the Rachel line, Yosef, Ephraim, and Yehuda from the Leia line, the two foci of centers of power. And in the story of Bnei Gad Bnei Ruvain, it's flipped. You have the 10 tribes who are willing to go into the land of Israel, not to stay out of the land of Israel. And you have the two tribes who are the also the Bechor, but they're the ones who are rejected. Reuven, who was replaced by Yehuda. And you have God, who is always goes together with Reuven because he's the firstborn of the Shifcha of Reuven, of Bilha, of, of, of uh, Zilpa, And Menashe, Menashe, of course, is the son who was replaced by Ephraim. So you have, in the story of the Miraglim, you have Ephraim and Yehuda. I'm sorry, you have Yehuda and Yosef through Ephraim. And here you have the flip. So it's, again, you have, this is, this is kind of a part of a kind of broader, grander theme of the second generation experiencing many of the challenges of the first generation and overcoming them or, or flipping them or doing it a little different, which leads to uh, their ability, symbolic of their ability to enter the land of Israel and continue the mission. So why I wanted to bring this specific uh, um, chapter into the pod is because there's intertextuality with Midrash, but then there's also intertextuality within the text itself. Right. And what, and, and the, enlightening and, and very insightful thing here is that the Torah, as far as I'm understanding, right, the Torah is sort of um, pointing you or, or signifying to you, right. um, echoing things to you so that if you want to understand what is going on over here, you got to go back over there. And exactly. then when you interplay both ideas together, now the text is opened up. And the Correct. reader can gain insight as to what's going on. Right. That's why and, I want to. And it, right. And this continues throughout the Bible. It continues throughout the Tanakh, where stories play off of other stories, sometimes explicitly, sometimes implicitly. And themes play off, you know, kind of major themes keep playing off of each other. Is it a second Exodus? It is, is it a second Matan Torah? Is it a second Kriyat Yamsuf? Is it a second. And then characters play off of each other. Are they the same? Are they fixing, to use Kabbalistic terms, tikkun? Are they correcting the mistakes of their forefathers? You know. So, yeah. Now, some of this you asked about before, about people who have done... So the Ramban very famously quoted the idea of ma'aseh avot siman lebanim, which is really a sense of understanding that what happens later is, 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 is patterned on what happened earlier, but he uses it in a you know in a limited fashion, in specific. And again, the question is: Do you do it systematically? Do you broaden it, and do you do it not just specifically with the avot, but with many other things going on? Right. Um, th these are such important principles. Um, and for the final question. Um, <laughs> We're going to go off of intertextuality and pick your brain on Hashkafa for a minute. Sure. Uh, <laughs> Amalek has long been an uncomfortable subject for modern Jews. Many ethical and moral challenges have been grappled with in regards to Amalek by Jewish philosophers and halachists for centuries. In the 17th chapter of your book, you delve into the philosophical and halachic development regarding the commandment to wipe out Amalek, eventually arriving at an important resolutions for today's modern jury, if you can enlighten us. Sure. Um, you know, that chapter is a little bit different than the other chapters in the book. Yeah. And the fact that it, you know, we, it was we something to, we that- We want to give you a well-rounded- we Yeah, want to show it was something that I had written and I felt, <laughs> you know, it was something that I had written at one point and felt, uh, um, you know, hadn't gotten a lot of airplay. And I thought, it, okay, I'm publishing a book. I think this is an important theme. So I stuck it in when after I was talking about David and, and Shaul. Um, yeah, so, you know, Amalek is a very, you know, it's part of the broader question about the interaction of, of halakha and morality or Torah and ethics, you know, and which, you know, in the Bible deals with all kinds of, you know, very big questions like Amalek, 
Ben Soreru More, Irhani Dachat, you know, lots of things like that, the killing of the seven nations, you know, and 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 genocide and all that, those questions. But trickle down to the modern period when we deal with all kinds of challenges of our sense of morality versus halacha, um, the mamzer, uh, aguna, women's issues, homosexuality. I mean, there's so many challenges that we have. Um, so I use this as a kind of method, uh, as one type of you see how sensitive um, many um, later thinkers were when they confronted, they didn't simply throw their hands up in the air and say, you know, like, you know, what do you mean morality? You're just westernized, Hellenized. The Torah says you do it. That's it. The Torah is the standard. And that's it. There is no morality outside of Torah, etc. Again, this is a broader question. As modern Orthodox Jews, I think we are very much inclined. You know, this goes back I, um, to the famous question of uh, the Euthyphro in uh, in Aristotle and Plato. There's a famous dialogue. Incredible uh, incredible dialogue right so the famous question is do the gods do that which is holy because it is holy or is it holy because the gods do it so take off the s for us it's the god does god do something because does god do that which is ethical because it's ethical or whatever god says is perforce ethical um which of course touches on broad questions in general um i certainly learned from my teachers that the the, the mainstream Jewish response, I'm not saying the only, but the mainstream Jewish response argues that, yes, God doesn't simply do things capriciously. And we say that whatever God, Avraham, the only way Avraham can challenge God and say, assumes that there's a thing called mishpat, that human beings can access and hold God up to uh, judgment. Otherwise, God should have simply said to Abraham, shut up, you puny little human being. You don't know anything. You don't see anything. You know, like he said to Job, you weren't there when things started. Who are you to talk to me? That's not what Hashem does. Hashem gets into a debate and plays by the rules of Abraham. Yes, if there's 40, meaning he tries to show that it's morally justified. So that's the general approach that I think emerges from the mainstream of Tanakh and, and Machshava. And so when we confront the dilemma of Amalek, um, it's a dilemma. Yeah, on the one hand, Amalek is terrible and they should be killed. But the idea that subsequently every single person, 2,000, 5,000 years later, who has nothing to do with the original Amalekites, who, that they should be killed is very challenging theologically, morally, uh, even halachically. And so... So in that essay, I tried to show, first of all, I tried to show on a shot level, um, it's far from clear that the way that we understand how to deal with Amalek is what the Torah said in Parshat Kitetzei, uh, this week's Parsha. Perfect. This week's Parasha. Um, when the Torah says, Amalek, it doesn't say there, get rid of every man, woman, and child. When it says, Amalek, it could be a turn of a phrase, which simply means destroy Amalek. Destroy Amalek, like when we say we're going to wipe them off the map. It doesn't literally mean you're going to kill every single... In war, it's going to be a total war. We're going to, you know, totally devastate them, like the United States did in World War II. They totally devastated many German cities. They didn't go around hunting for every German man, woman, and child, but they carpet bombed, and they destroyed Dresden and other cities, and that was they didn't care about the collateral damage. That's one way to read it on a shot level. In Sefer Shmuel, the Navi does go and say specifically me tafa'ad, you know, yonek, ma'adolal, etc. There he does talk about uh, men, women, and children. So in Sefer Shmuel, uh, you have that. Here too, you can interpret it as what he meant was you go and you fight without any barriers, no Geneva conventions, you just go and destroy. But it doesn't mean that you go and kill every Amaleki. That's clearly in later strands of the tradition, it was interpreted that it's a that it is a mitzvah to go and destroy every individual Amaleki. Not all halachists believe that. I, I, you know, if I was rewriting it today, you know, it's 12 years, it's 10 years later, uh, more than that, 
I would have included the fact that there's a, actually a famous comment, the Briska Rav, who says that, you know, that um, the idea that you can go and kill all, every single last Amaleki is only if you have a tzav from the Navi directly, because it doesn't say that explicitly in the Torah. You, only if you have a direct commandment from a Navi. That's what he says. Number two, there are others who point out that this is a, a, a Klal Yisrael mitzvah. It's not a mitzvah to each individual Jew, which is also... However, there are many, including Rambam and Sefer Achinu, who say that it is an individual mitzvah on every single person to go and kill Amalek. So if you, which is kind of the standard understanding that the average Jew uh, today from Jew believes. Um, so how do we deal with that? So, you know, you couldn't, you, one approach that you find very popular is to say, well, yeah, it's true on a theoretical level, but Lamaisa, God saved us this moral problem because he mixed up all the nations and we don't have to worry about it but again that's a little bit of a cop-out because you know so i brought there the fact that if you look in the some many a number of the achronim, they take it in a different direction and they're willing they're not simply willing to accept it at face value and they're willing to engage and 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 engage in exegesis and engage in deep thinking and so you for example you have this beautiful uh, approach of the Avnei Nezer Ravim of Sachachev, one of the great Achronim um, where he he writes that you know the whole idea of Amalek of killing their offspring and their subsequent generations makes no sense because it goes against the Torah the Torah says now the real it's an amazing comment because in Pshat that only a uh, applies to a beitin, that in the context, that pasuk is said in the context of a judicial system, you can't have vicarious punishment, which was very common in the ancient Near East. You can't kill a son for the the sins of the father, or the father for the sins of the son. Can't do that. Number one. Number two, it seems to be a pro, uh, to the Jewish court. Here, he does two things. He takes it out of the realm of beitin, and he puts it in the realm of the conflict, the theological uh, metaphysical conflict between Am Yisrael and Amalek. Number two, he talks about it as applying to non-Jews as well, this principle of lo yum tu And he says, therefore, the only way that you can interpret this is only if the generations later are actually engaging in Amalekite behavior. So it, he basically makes a shift from a genetic um, ethnic move to a behavioral category for Amalek, which is a radical rereading of the tradition. But again, this is an attempt to, to, to solve the problem and it's a legitimate attempt. And it's within the boundaries of the tradition that someone can say this and, and, and goes in that direction, which again is fascinating. And again, tells you that, you know, perush lo nin alu, and that this is also part of the ongoing conversation when we deal with the challenge of halakha and morality, um, not to simply dismiss our moral claim, our moral qualms as, oh, we're just westernized, whatever. The Sachachavar wasn't westernized, but these are inherently Jewish. Uh, it's an internal battle within the system and how to work these out is part of the, the beauty and the challenge of, uh, of Jewish thought and halacha. We actually had a podcast uh, with Rabbi Dr. Eugene Korn, um, on this exact topic and this this theme. So um, for anybody who hasn't heard that, you could definitely in, uh, go back and enjoy it. And we also were, we're going to be doing it hopefully with a surprise guest uh, soon as well. But your input here was really, really valuable. And I wanted to ask you before we go, if you have anything to plug, you have a book coming out. <laughs> you better no. be working on a book. No, 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 I don't. Right now I'm... Uh... I'm so busy with my shul is growing and uh, I'm writing, you know, from time to time I'm writing from time to time I'm writing. And, um, you know, one of these days if I write more, you know, today, most books, unless you have a lot of time, um, most books come out of writing articles and then later you put them together. You know, people have an internet series and they, you know, they put together a series. Uh, so we'll see. We'll see. But I saw yeah. that you wrote for, I saw that you wrote for uh, Rabbi Angel's conversations. Yes. Yes. From time, from time he asks me to write. Yeah. Uh, 
and uh, and 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 other things that I write and uh, but I also have other things. You know, thank you. But I appreciate the plug. You know. Absolutely, Good and um, honestly, this book. It's you said you wrote it 10 years ago, but in my mind, it's a classic because really it goes through a lot of the fundamental uh, concepts of intertextuality that has that has grown today exponentially yes. all over. Um, it's it's sort of, uh, you know, for 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 the modern Orthodox world, it is it is it's become yeah. it's taken on a life of its own. Um, and you do a great job in your book. Uh, not only showing it, not only showing it in specific midrashim, but also presenting the the the, the general idea of it. Um, and we want to thank you for coming on. We hope we can I do appreciate it. Appreciate it. I I want to give you guys chizuk on everything that you're doing, and it's really uh, important. And uh, it adds to the, it just adds to the seriousness and, and integrity of our community. And um, you mentioned a plug. I don't have any plug. I don't have a book to plug, but. I love coming and talking to other people. I love visiting communities. You know, if anybody wants, you know, so that's that's my only plug. Um, I think I have to come visit you in your community. <laughs> Thank you. Amazing. Thank you so much for your Thank time. You. And um, this was awesome. Thank you. Okay. Erev Tov. Thank, Thank you. Hey, guys. Thanks so much for tuning into the Judaism Demystified podcast. We really appreciate all your support and your feedback. If you want to help us grow the podcast, keep spreading the word, share it with your friends, family, or whoever you think would be interested. We also opened a Patreon, so you can become a patron, contribute any small amount you'd like, which would really help us grow the show. Um, our Patreon is www.patreon.com Judaism. Pretty easy to remember. Thank you again, and we hope to keep putting out great shows for you guys.